One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. We have something extra special and a little bit unexpected for you. As part of the Plymouth Festival of Words, James and I recorded our first ever Histories of the Unexpected Live. And you can now download it on iTunes for just 99p at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected live. If you download it, you will hear about the history of signatures, which of course is all about the reign of Henry VIII forgery and rebellion. You'll also hear about the history of clocks, which is about the Industrial Revolution, and how could we forget it, the history of the Reformation. Everything's about the Reformation with you. And it's also, of course, about nuclear weapons and the Titanic. Of course it is. So everybody, go to iTunes today and download our special Histories of the Unexpected Live, or go to historyhit.com forward slash unexpected live. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected. We've got something slightly different for you today. As part of the unexpected mission, which is to make people think about the past in different ways, we're also very interested in in sort of opening up a window into life as a historian and also to providing you guys with the sort of necessary tools to become a historian. The Um, historian's toolbox for you. Yeah, the historian's toolbox. And... What we wanted to do, to do today is to just, rather than demonstrate how we can pull apart the history of anything, whether it's holes or dragons or... What have we just done? We did chickens. We've just done the fart, chickens <laughs> and cats. Yeah. We thought we would just talk a little bit about our day-to-day jobs. Yes. Because um, historians... You know, one of my problems with this is that when... When a historian talks in public, so often it's about a book that has been written. It's a, it's all sort of presented as a fait accompli. It's 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 often a historian writer talking about something that he did in the past, which is quite ironic for yeah. a historian. But the day to day life of a historian is massively varied, and the advantage we have is that James is a very different type of historian yeah. uh, from me. So. Um, James, you kick off. Why don't you, I want you to tell me about about Sweden. So we're very we we we're, we're different. Um, you're would you label yourself a public historian? Yeah, a public historian, and I'm a I'm a 
an academic historian, which basically means I work in a university. So I'm I'm involved not outside of this podcast. My day job at the University of Plymouth is as a professor of early modern British history. I'm involved in teaching, uh, and I'm involved in research and in the management of research. So you're doing your own research as well so as I'm, managing other people's yeah, projects. So I'm doing I'm I'm writing books and and guiding people in their in their own research so in a sort of mentoring and advisory capacity but you asked me to talk about Sweden yeah, let's mean, kick off with well, actually no you've just mentioned your own research i mean you're 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 obsessed with gloves at the moment aren't you i'm well i'm writing to be honest i'm writing several books at the moment like <laughs> long book sort of projects one of which is about gloves and any of you who are regular listeners to the podcast will have heard endlessly about gloves. I always manage to sort of slip a glove in, although I, I, the last three that we did this morning, I haven't talked about gloves at all. But I'm writing a book about about gloves, which is about the culture of gloves across the early modern period, so from about 1500 to 1800, and the meaning they have within within society. And I'm, yeah. I'm writing Listen that to with, our gloves podcast, because yes, it's fabulous. It will, it, will, it will tell you all why about Why you that. wear gloves, what people think of your gloves, why you decorate gloves, why you take gloves off, all of those gloves things. Gloves as gifts, gloves yeah. as relics, or how they're made, their relationship to trade, how they're, you know, they're gifted, all that kind of thing. And I'm writing that with two colleagues, Svante Norhem, who's a professor at Lund University in Sweden, and the wonderful professor Susan Broomhall, uh, who's at the University of Western Australia. Um, I'm also also writing several other books. So I've got two long-term projects. One is on archives and gender. So it's looking at it's looking at archives from the perspective largely of women's writing, so how they survive. The other one is about the family and it's it's looking at the fam it's called family and materials of memory. So it's ultimately how we look at the history of the family. So how how people recorded details about about their about family life and it's organized in a series of chapters that look at different kinds of 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 document or material culture or object yeah um i've then i'm then part of another um book project uh that comes out of something i'll tell you a little bit about later on which is about the the courtneys the courtney family in the 18th century and powderham castle there's a book I'm writing there called Kitty and His Sisters, which is a, a, a book about the third Viscount uh, and these 13 sisters that, yeah. he, that, he, that he has to marry off. I'm also writing something on gender power and material culture and also uh, something on haptic histories. What does that even mean? Haptic, haptic histories is the interface of objects and senses. Like what? For example, that if we were going to write the... Um, the history of the glove, the haptic history of the glove, would be about how you how you touch the glove, oh, how you smell the glove, yeah. how you how you. So it's kind of it's a sort of new it's a new area of of history. So there, I'm don't, writing don't, those don't, those things, and that's just your your kind of book research stuff, isn't it? You do all sorts of other things as well. I mean, yeah, I, I I think one of the key things to realise is that we both have. Well, I suppose what's now called portfolio careers. You both do. Yes, I mean, you are a professor at Plymouth, but you within that role you do all sorts of things and yes. your own research yes. is one part of it yes 
Um, so I'm writing a series of books as well at the moment. We didn't even mention the book we are writing on our no. podcast. Which is, <laughs> so uh, we're both writing a history. His- histories of the Unexpected. We are both writing the Histories of the Unexpected. Um, which is excellent fun. It's really good. It's actually the most fun. I've written 12 books, and this is the most Ooh. enjoyable one. <laughs> um, so I'm doing that, and I'm also doing three little books for Penguin. Um you know those wonderful seventies illustrated. Love, I love books. those. Yeah, you're very lucky. I want to do one of those. I'll do one on the family. I'll try and sort it out. Good, sort it. <laughs> um, yeah, so they're, they they they're reinventing those. So um, I'm doing some naval battles. I'm doing the Battle of Trafalgar, uh, the Armada, mm. and the Battle of the Nile, uh, which was seventeen uh, late seventeen nineties, just before you know after the French Revolution, before Trafalgar. Um, it's when Nelson really shot to fame. And I love doing them. So each one is illustrated. Each each page is illustrated. So you have to write half a page of text next to next to an illustration. So the author decides what the illustration is going to be. That's the really fun thing. You say, well, this section is going to be about um, the explosion of the French flagship at the Battle of the Nile. And then you find some source material, which you send to the artist. You have a chat with him about how it's going to work, what might be an original way of doing it. Um, it's immensely good fun because you have to involve storytelling with words, which is what I normally do with storytelling with images, uh, which is also what I usually do, but I do it with historical images. So I've, I've written a number of books which are actually all about images as sources. Mm. Um, but here we are creating the image, which is mm. a, a wonderful challenge. I've, I've hugely enjoyed it. I and st- they're quite short. They're really short. They're only like oh. 5,000 words. So it's very difficult to I still have lots of my condense it. Ladybird history books. Do you? Yeah, King Alfred. Oh, Elizabeth the first. Mm. They're re- yeah, they're I really good. I bought some as research to see what they'd done before. So I bought one on the Armada, bought one on Nelson. Um, yeah. Well, it's also the idea that you know people are really going to read those. They're going to get such wide readership. You know, and those Ladybird books are so, they're iconic. They mm. you know they will they will last. Um, the books I write, you know, um, you know, five people. How much have they uh, got? Most of That's an interesting thing. It's my... interesting. Let's just talk briefly about the difference between yes. an academic book and a a trade book, a book for um, sort of the trade public, it's called. The kind of the kind you'd file in piles in Waterstones. My, my first book was with Oxford University Press, you know, really um, high-end, prestigious academic publisher, and it's over £60. Pounds. So right. people people can't, you know, ordinary people won't buy it. No, I mean, our academic, academic books are no. £125. Pounds. Yeah. And the those publishers of academic books make their money by selling the books to libraries. libraries. So they yep. know that if they produce yep. a book, they can sell 50 copies at 125 yep. quid. So it's a, it's a completely different model. Yep. I've actually just I've actually just um, just negotiated with the publisher of one of my last books to bring it out in paperback yep. so that actually people can afford it. It'll be about 20 pounds. So it'll be quite, you know, it'll it would actually be nice for somebody to be able to buy read and buy uh, a book that I've written. So how do you deal with the challenge then of getting the latest, most exciting academic research out to the public. I mean, essentially, that's one of the problems we are answering with our book on histories of the unexpected. Because yes. what we want to do is yes. to do a kind of broad survey of the most amazing thought applied to yeah. certain things, and saying, "Look, this this stuff is out there. It's absolutely fantastic. You can write the history of the bubble. You can write the history of holes." Yeah. Um, I'm just about to do the chapter on the lean, which is great. Is our history of leaning? <laughs> um, and there are some wonderfully creative, fabulous minds out there. And what we're doing is collecting these novel approaches, this novel way of thinking, and then presenting it to the public and saying, "This is what everyone in academia." is doing this is how they can change the way they think about the past and that means that the uh, 
sort of a, a member of the general public who wants to buy a history book can access that brilliant new thought without having to wade through a 10,000 word monograph. 100,000 word monograph. 100,000 yeah, word yeah. monograph, whatever, um, which, you know, the first 5,000 words of it is the historiography of what they're doing yeah. and trying to and, demonstrate their approach. And detailed and detailed footnotes. I mean, and yeah. part of that is... Do you see that as a big problem for the historical and, profession? And part of that is the it's the professionalisation of history and it's also the way in which the government is trying to monitor research in universities. So you, maybe you, you've not heard of the REF, the Research Excellence Framework, yeah. which is every six, five to six years... Every university department is monitored in terms of how well they are performing. And what that means is that people in universities are forced to write a particular kind of history. So, you know, with the with the emphasis being in history, being on the research monograph yeah. and it being and it being internationally outstanding or excellent or, so, or so four stars. Just quickly, what that means is that the historian has identified a hole in history, a gap in history, they've demonstrated that this gap needs to be filled and then they have filled it using original research and they've they've, oh, they've proved one, what they've done. That's one paradigm. Yeah. That's one paradigm that you know that you have a that you have a uh, there's a gap that you fill, you've made a discovery of new sources and you write about that. I mean what a lot of historians do is they argue with each other. So it's a topic that's already been covered but you have a new slant on it. You know, and people have made whole careers out of, you know, redoing the reign of Henry VIII, rethinking it in particular ways, and that's what gets you, you know, which is very different from the book from the from the books that you might find the history books that you might find in Waterstones. Yeah. I mean, do you, you know, think that, that are written do, in a very different way? Absolutely, because yeah. And I like writing both. I'm enjoying writing I'm enjoying writing for a more popular audience now because because, and hello, Ralph Holbrook, um, I do not sit with my supervisor on my shoulder. And it took me a long time to write without my supervisor on my shoulder. Um, because you have to, writing an academic book, you think in a, I find it very constricting in terms of what I can say. Yeah. Very limiting in what I can say. I love writing academic academic stuff, and I could never, I could never get up, give it up. There's something that I find about the intellectual rigour of it. But I also like the kind of literary flair of not having to force something through a kind of, um, you know, historiographical straitjacket. Yeah. Yeah. All the time. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
what else have you been doing? So that's what we have. Those are books. Um, books writing. I've just finished the. Um, I've just made a series for National Geographic called The Maritime Silk Road. Ooh. So um, it was after the success of my BBC series, The Silk Road, um, National Geographic um, approached and said, we want to make one that looks at um, Chinese maritime trade in both past and present. So we had a, a kind of a, a really interesting challenge of hopping around through chronology all the time. So it hmm. wasn't it wasn't kind of a straight um this happened here then this went there and actually what we actually ended up doing was following the footsteps of the famous Chinese explorer 15th century Zheng He um which is spelt Zheng He. So yeah, if you're English yeah. you might that's what you might yeah. recognize it pronounced Zheng He. Yeah. Um and he went on seven very very big voyages early 15th century. We ended up following the voyages. So we went to uh, from China to Singapore, and then back. From China to India, and then back. China to Africa, and back. So in each episode, we didn't go from China and ended up in Africa. Each one, we went away, and then back again, and away, and then back mm. again. It was a really interesting way of doing it. Um, so I've just done the, just finished filming that. It involved going to Singapore, Malacca, all over Southeast China, uh, Malindi in Kenya, um, or a little island um, just off the coast of Somalia, which was quite frightening. Uh, Egypt, um, which was shocking. Um, ever since the revolution, has just completely fallen apart, basically. Right. One of the things they stopped doing after the revolution was picking up the rubbish. Right. I've just... I mean, I've never been anywhere... I've been all over the place, but I've never been anywhere quite as shocking as, as, as where I went. That so particular the stru area structures of, of society have just yeah. fallen... And we were, we were stopped by the police within anything between 30 seconds and five minutes, no more than five minutes, of getting out of the van and filming. Goodness me. Yeah, even with all the correct paperwork, even with a fixer. Um, and it's, Goodness me. It's, there's so much kind of strictness and control over what's right. going on that it's right. very difficult to get anything done. That was all around Suez Canal as well. Yeah, so yeah. we were demonstrating the difference between the 15th century now. The one massive difference, of course, yeah, is you've got the Suez, the Suez Canal that you can get yeah. there. Um, so I've done that, and I've just finished doing the voiceover, which means when you're filming, you do the pieces to camera, you you you, you present your pieces, and then you you link all the gaps together by sitting in a studio. I did mine up in Bristol. Mm. You work on the script, and then you fit it to the pictures. Excellent. Uh, so um, that's now done. That's really exciting, actually. When's um, it out? Probably October or November. Right, right. Um, and I'm just waiting to hear about whether I've got a new series to film this summer for the BBC. Ooh, um, fun, yeah, and it, it kind of goes like that. The, the the commissioning goes in sort of phases, and and you have often you have lots of irons and fires and things yeah. hang over you, and then suddenly you get the all clear, and, you're and, and you have to, to you have to clear everything. You know, you have to bin the diary. <laughs> we're writing this summer. We are writing this <laughs> you summer. Have to tell the BBC no, yeah, yeah. no, thank you. I don't <laughs> no, want to. I don't want to do your wonderful documentary. <laughs> I don't think I'll. <laughs> And what about heritage and stuff? You do loads of heritage things, don't you? Yeah, I mean, it's been a busy, busy early summer. Um, I've, I mean, one of the things is I, I work very collaboratively, and I think that in, that's increasingly a model that is coming into academia. Well, so, particularly so there, history there is new, it's relatively new for history, isn't it? Yeah, it's relatively new, and we're being encouraged to be collaborative rather than sort of, you know, ploughing a, a sort of lone furrow and doing your own independent research. You're being encouraged to work as as teams and to work collaboratively. And I've got there are three really interesting and really different projects that I've been in, been working on. The first, which I've I've talked about um, in one of our podcasts before, is a project at Powderham Castle. So I won't talk too much about that. But this is a an initiative between the University of Plymouth and 
uh, University of Pennsylvania. There is a there's a Powderham Castle live podcast which there you is. can download and listen to, yes. and um, the one on horns, horns and bookcases, horns and bookcases, horns and bookcases is 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 based on that. But it's a project between effectively Plymouth University and Penn Design, so this historic preservation unit at the University of Pennsylvania in the US. We had a three week um, sort of meet up to research or project at Powderham Castle in Devon this summer, working with the Earl of Devon. And basically what it is, is a fusion of history and archive studies with architectural history. And then people who are, the best way to describe them is they are above ground archaeologists. So their approach to buildings is fascinating. So that's been a really exciting thing. We're going to come back for the next two years. I've also just come back from Sweden. And I've been part of a, I lead a research network into gender power and materiality, uh, which is effectively, it's looking at looking at objects and material culture across Europe, 1500 to 1800, and looking at how you study the intersection of issues of gender. So um, not just sort of male, female, but also issues of sexuality and materiality. So the physicality of things and power. And right. that's really where the gloves work comes out of. And we just we've been working with the Victorian Albert Museum in London, and we just had a really lovely meeting with the Vassar Museum uh, in Stockholm. It's one if, of my if, favourite museums. If, if you haven't been, it's amazing. Yeah. It's a seventeenth-century ship uh, that came out of the harbour in Stockholm, I think, and sank five minutes later. Yeah. And it, they have it intact. And so what it's they, like the Mary Rose, but better <laughs> and, and it's shiny, com- and it's it has com- its own it, museum. It's amazing. It, it actually it sank yeah. in one piece, and it sank in shallow water, and they got it back. Yeah. And one of the things that we're that we're doing, and I've, I'm working with Nadine Ackerman from Leiden, Svante Norhem from Lund, Jacqueline Van Gent and Sue Broomhall uh, from the University of Western Australia. And what we were talking to the Vassa Museum about is that they are refreshing their permanent exhibitions. They've just had a temporary exhibition called The Vassa Women. And what they want to do, it's a very male museum, and what they want to do is to see if they can inject a kind of an element of gender and to see things not from just a purely male point of view, but also from a from a female point of view, um, and so that's the that's the kind of thing that we're going to be advising them on. We also had an event at Skarhult Castle, uh, which is in Skurna, just outside of Lund, and it's owned by Baroness Alexandra von Schwerin and her husband Karl Yuan. and she they have an amazing exhibition, of, of, which is effectively about powerful women in their family. Um, five over five hundred years, and this is something that Alexandra is absolutely passionate about. That she basically became Baroness of the. She's from a very sort of old aristocratic family in Sweden, and she married Kaluan uh, the von Schwerins, and entered that dynasty, and then basically found herself in the position of being a mistress of an enormous household, effectively, and then thought. What I'm really interested in is telling the story of this family through its women, and that is going to be a way of trying to enact change in the in Sweden yeah. in terms of what the history curriculum is. So, trying to get women's history into the into the the curriculum, and she's been doing wonderful work. They have 
tens of thousands of visitors that come through it every year. She's on TV about it. She's interviewed. She's had the government ministers coming along, um, high school principals. She's had um, publishers coming along, trying to get this message across. And this this group of mine, this this network, um, have been working with her on that. So we had a we had a meeting with her and her husband. And about three hours, we went round the exhibition and we stopped room by room. And what we did, it was some consultancy work about how they now, having looked, it's, it's really interesting because what they've done is they've told the history of the family through the women. Mm-hmm. And so what we want to do is now tell the history of the family through the men. Yeah. So how do you go round? So that really is what gender is. It's not just about women's history. It's actually about codes of masculinity as well. Mm. And it's also about different sort of sexualities. Yeah. So that's interesting. Um, and then finally, I have another really exciting heritage project. I pressed the button on a grant application last night, which if it comes off, will be brilliant, uh, which is to do heritage work in Turkey. And it's based on a series of churches and sites in modern day Turkey. Um, and these these are contested sites. And it's working with two NGOs, one in Albania, terrific um, NGO called Cultural Heritage Without Borders, um, utterly, utterly brilliant and do wonderful work um, to do. They use heritage restoration as a form of peace building. Um, And then in Turkey, we're working with the Hrant Dink Foundation. And Hrant Dink was a very famous uh, newspaper editor and journalist who was assassinated in 2006. His daughter set up this foundation in his honour to, as a sort of a legacy of, of, of his life and his achievement, to basically um, enact peace building mm. in Turkey. And so, it, so the project would be a two and a half year project to work with those organizations and and i mean that's that's really exciting so i mean it, what i do my day job is incredibly diverse yeah and varied and on top of it we do this podcast weekly yeah yeah so it's busy i don't sleep much no <laughs> but it constantly changes as well i mean i'm doing something which i've never done before um I and mean, you were talk, talking about doing your consultancy thing yeah uh for the the gender and power in the castle so i i do a lot of consultancy as well and i'm, I'm currently working with a um, computer games company based in hmm. Beijing. Hmm. Um, so I have to go to Beijing every six weeks or so. Um, they are I, I, actually it's, it's all top secret at the moment. I'm I'm helping. Are we allowed to talk about it? N- yes, in vague terms, I'm helping them recreate an 18th century world for a a mobile online game. Um, Gosh which is really good fun. So um, identifying stories which the game players can uh, can um, explore um, in, in, their, in their gameplay. Also identifying historical characters. Um, I've got to, I have responsibility of essentially helping build up the three-dimensional world. So it's all to do with buildings, it's all to do with clothing, it's all to do with behaviour. Um, it's, 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 it's new and it's exciting. Uh, and I'm working with some very young, um, very bright, very creative people. So that's my, my latest, latest thing, which is a, which is a, a really a new challenge for me, but, um, I'm hugely enjoying it. We're busy. 
Very busy. We're busy. Well, we hope you enjoyed that. Yeah, so this is going to be, I think, part... We might return to this. This is going to be part of our series, Being a Historian. I yeah. think we're going to talk about being a historian. Um, and as well as that, we're going to do little ones on how to be a historian. And if, you, if, you, if you're interested, get in touch with us for with ideas. We have a series of things that we'd like to that we'd like to look at in terms of how you approach history. And we want to aim this at people at all levels, from from school and college, whether you're interested in particular areas, whether you're doing independent studies and want to know about how to go about picking a topic, yeah. whether you need to whether you need to know about how to find historical documents, how to read old handwritings or the study of paleography, how to use digital online websites in order to access primary primary historical documents. Yeah, from tracing your family tree to finding out about women in the Renaissance. Yes, exactly. So this will follow. We promise. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's all coming your way. And we won't stop with our crazy histories. What are we doing next? We're doing... Ghosts. Ghosts? Ice cream. Ice cream. We're doing a summer special. Bucket and Spade. Bucket and Spade and Beaches. Beaches. Yeah, that's going to be great. And we're doing Chalk Valley. Chalk we will, Valley we, by History the time Festival. this comes out, we yeah. will have probably done Chalk Valley, but it, would, it should then be a live podcast for you. We are doing Chalk and Valleys. <laughs> the history of Chalk and the history of Valleys. It's going to be great. Thank you very much indeed for listening, and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye.